Kowalski. I'm joined today by Hilary Marsh, the chief strategist of a content company, and Elizabeth Weaver Ingle, who is the chief strategist for Spark Consulting. Welcome, you two. Thanks, Justin. Glad to be here. Yeah. So today we they have recently released a white paper on content curation, and so we're they're here to kind of discuss what they've found um, and some ideas. And this is actually a topic that has been discussed in a previous white paper by Elizabeth's, you know, several, her original one. So um, maybe worth going back and revisiting that. But now that we're here in the present, uh, Hillary, why don't I start with you? Uh, why is content curation so critical right now? What is it? What is the business argument for associations to invest limited resources in building up con a content curation strategy? Sure. So uh, from my perspective, associations are content machines. So think about what associations you know, do on behalf of their members. They create programs and products and services and offerings, whether it's you know, original research or uh, industry standards or you know, any number of things depending on what the association is. And so at the end of the day, all of those things manifest themselves in the world as content. So all of an association's work is content at the end of the day. And so um, uh, all too often, they're, in, they're producing kind of what is a state of overload for their members. And because of that, they owe it to their members to curate the content um, that they produce um, in a way that's going to help that information just be uh, absorbed by the audience and by the members. And not only the information that they produce, but in their historical role as gatekeepers for other people's information to curate that as well and carefully select what people need to know now and why. And so, you know, your question was not only what is curation, but why now? And why now is just that there's more and more and more and more. And so um, there's a state of information overload. And Elizabeth really uh, wrote about this well in the setup sort of portion of the white paper. Yeah, so Justin, as you mentioned, you know, this is a revisiting of a topic that I had first hit in 2012 in the very first white paper I ever wrote. Um, and you know, the reason that I wanted to revisit the topic is because in the intervening eight years, this problem of, of information overload that Hillary highlighted has only gotten worse for our members and other audiences. Um, and so right now it seems particularly pressing, um, in part actually, and this was purely coincidental timing, because of the coronavirus pandemic, um, you know, there's there's been an increase in bad actors promulgating bad info at the same time as people in general, so of course, obviously our members are even more stressed for their time and attention than they were, you know, even six months or a year ago. Um, you know, and so you, you had asked about the, the business case here. Now, there is an issue that your staff as an association executive may have to learn or be trained in some different skills in order to do this effectively. But the point of it is if you, if you do it right, if you do content curation well, it actually reduces the load on your staff by bringing more volunteers into the process. And through that, it increases member engagement and satisfaction. Associations are concerned rightly right now about retention. So really anything that we can do 
as associations to give members more of a sense of belonging, more of a sense of involvement, a sense that they're contributing to the work of the association, they have a, a personal stake in what's happening is critical. So Elizabeth, I mean, definitely with the everyone being at home and working virtually right now, that presents a new challenge for a lot of folks in a lot of different areas. But I definitely find myself looking for information and learning and maybe new ways that previously I'd be in the office, I'd be engaging with my colleagues. And so do you think, I mean, is part of the opportunity here that members being virtual that right now there may be opportunities that weren't there previously? That's a, yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I don't know. So there's sort of the staff side and the member side. From the, from the staff side, I don't know that a virtual environment directly affects curation work, other than the fact that, you know, our um, our water cooler conversations are happening via Zoom or via Slack as opposed to like actually standing there at the water cooler together. Um, but it is certainly one more thing that can easily be done remotely, which definitely kind of puts another nail in the coffin on the whole like we can't accommodate remote work excuse that too many associations have used for years to forbid remote work and flexible schedules. So I think this is, is yet another demonstration point that we absolutely can accommodate that. You know, we can move to more of a results-oriented work environment um, as opposed to, you know, the more traditional eight hours a day, five days a week, butts and seats, you know, and that's our measure of productivity. From the perspective of the members, again, they, they are even more stressed and pressured right now for a whole host of reasons, ranging from what may go, be going on in the professional industry that they are actually working in, that, you know, the, the professional industry the association serves, to the fact that, you know, a lot of people are really struggling with, um, you know, a, a life balance, a work-life work life balance in a, in a virtual environment because it's not something that they've had to manage before, particularly if they happen to have school age or younger children at home. Um, so anything that we can do to make their worlds easier, to make their identification and assimilation of critical data and information easier is only to the benefit of the association and the benefit of the members. That makes sense. Um, so jumping on that, um, so stress, which we're all under more lately, makes it harder to absorb information. And, um, and so everyone, because we're all under stress, it's even more important for, um, for associations to make that better, you know, to really provide not only all the information, but the right information. Um, and the more that associations do that, the more they instill confidence in their members that their information is worth absorbing, their emails are worth opening. Um, and uh, associations have been a little bit behind the curve on this whole front in general. So we identify different levels. So we called it a maturity model or a maturity ladder. Um, and whatever you want to call it, there's both sharing more and then there's different levels of analysis and selectivity. And that's really the curation piece, is adding the analysis and, and being very selective about what you share. Um, and that's the skills piece that Elizabeth alluded to, which I, I think we're gonna uh, discuss a little bit more later. So Hillary, I think, you know, 
when I think about finding information, I am personally, you know, I will go to Google, type in my question, see if I can get my answer there. Uh, and I think the paper notes very specifically that content curation isn't about trying, you shouldn't be trying to compete with search tools. Right. How, how do you envision um, the, the difference between a very advanced search functionality? Like I go to my, their web, the, you know, my association's website, I search for the information, I get my answer uh, versus, um, you know, that's advanced search versus that a content curation aspect that we're talking about today. Well, um, so I want to clear up one thing. You said advanced search. So we on the inside of associations, and I used to work at the National Association of Realtors, and we spent a lot of time tweaking our on-site search engine and thinking about how to make the advanced search results better. 1% of the people who searched used the advanced search. So nobody filters search, you know, or like on that extra search window, you know, by date or a date range or some something specific. So we wish they would, and maybe that would be better, but in reality, they just don't. So we can't rely on tools to sort of do that filtering for us. So by Google, um, that's a specific incidence where, um, or a specific example, and we, we use that as a case study in the white paper. So I was working with a client who had a ton of information about what various government agencies had to say or put out there in the world about the topic that they work on, the industry that they work on. And, um, and that actually poses a risk, right? Because if that government agency redesigns its website, all your links are broken. Or if they change what they say, and you still have the information and guidance from two years ago or five years ago on your website because you don't spend that time refreshing all those links, then you're, you're creating a lack of confidence and a lack of trust. So, so we can't be responsible. Associations can't be responsible for what anybody else says, AKA replicating what Google does. The unique value that associations offer is what their analysis is of what that agency says. So that, that's what their members want. And that is um, information that's gonna age more slowly and really provide more unique value that they can't get on Google. So that's yeah. what specifically, that's what that meant. Yeah, and, and even for those of us who are sort of the super nerds who do use those advanced search features, e even then, it's still returning you information where you have to vet the quality of the sources um, and it's only providing information. It's not providing context. It's not providing meaning. It's not doing the sense making that Hillary just talked about. Curation is more than just selecting sources. It's about telling a story, explaining why this particular piece of information matters versus this other piece of information and, and how all of this is going to come together into a cohesive whole to help the people who are coming to you for information. There's no search function that does that. And as Hillary just articulated, that additional level of analysis and contents, uh, uh, context and, and sort of sense making, meaning making, that's the secret sauce to doing all of this well. So if you look at the maturity model that we developed that Hillary just referenced, you see that that sort of advanced search AI enhanced newsletter kind of level of content curation. I'm making air quotes here for, for folks. Um, but you know, content curation that we, that we all think of 
is the bottom step on the maturity model. So it's, it's critical. It's the foundation, but it's all the stuff that's above that, that really provides the value. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So I, with content, I feel like there are a lot of folks out there that, you know, they were constantly sending me information. Um, I'm, you know, I'm sometimes I'm reading it. A lot of times I'm just kind of deleting it out of my inbox. Um, and then there are plenty of folks who kind of rely on you to go out, the, the user to go out and kind of search for it, come and find it, and you pull them in. Uh, Elizabeth, you see content curation being one of those, both of those, and you know why? Why? It's it's it is both. So, Justin, you just kind of illustrated a really important point about all this, right? We we all end up on a zillion different newsletter distribution list, however it is that we get there, and a lot of times we don't read those. Um, you know, because it is only that, that base level. It may not even be an AI enabled newsletter. It might just be, you know, you can, you can like Henry Ford in the cars, right? You can have the newsletter in any color you want, as long as it's black. Um, you know, everybody's getting the same thing. Well, that's kind of the worst case of just pushing stuff out to people, regardless of who they are, where they are in their lives, where they are in their careers, what it is they're actually interested in. The AI-enabled newsletters let you at least do some level of customization where, again, based on people's expressed interests, based on demographic factors about them, uh, you know, based on their previous behavior, you can start um, creating multiple versions of those news pieces that go out that play to those things, that play to what I've done in the past, what I've told you I'm interested in, what you know about me personally as far as my demographics, demographics, et cetera. Um, but when what you're pushing out is of higher quality, if you're doing that well, you pull more people in because they've realized you are a quality trusted source that is in fact going to help their lives be better. So they are going to be more willing to come to you in the first place looking for information. They're motivated to pay attention to what you're providing them among all that that noise that's competing for their attention every day. That makes sense. Um, I think one of the other challenges is you're pushing, you know, you push all this information out there uh, and a lot of associations end up putting it out in a whole bunch of different locations. So Hillary, you know, as an association starts to reconcile, you know, maybe they've got one department that puts out a digital mag- online magazine, another department, the communications department has their newsletter. Uh, they've got inter, you know, the president has their, you know, monthly blog post and uh, Twitter maybe even has some creative fun content that's, you know, news breaking. How do associations start to, not to mention like all the presentations at events and all the other things yeah. that are out there from associations, yeah. how do they reconcile all those different pieces to have an effective content curation strategy? Well, first of all, the organizations I work with don't do that. I mean, cause that's my first advice. Like you're, it's not helpful to just pepper everything everywhere. And people are smarter than that. They're, the, they're going to filter you out mentally the more you do that. The more you think like, oh, let's use retargeting to be everywhere. Let's like put all of our stuff on social media. Let's put it all on Facebook. Let's put it all on Twitter. Let's send them a million emails. People tune you out. 
So, you know, one of my favorite sayings in the world is just because you can doesn't mean you should. So this is really about what you should. And going back to what Elizabeth said about telling a story, the meaning or the origin of the word and use of curation comes from the museum world. So at a good museum, they have a whole storehouse of statues from a given period of time or pieces of art from a given artist. But they don't just open the storeroom and say, here, have at it. They're choosing what you need to see. Um, the, the thing that I find personally, this is my personal confession, missing in some of the AI powered ones is kind of a lack of transparency about how did you choose this for me? So I think that the best, um, the best examples have a combination of user selected personalization, customization topics and organization powered or behavior powered personalization. So there's customization and personalization. Customization is what I choose as the user. Personalization is what a machine chooses for me. So I think that the, the AI is terrific on the personalization end and the results are good. I've heard from Rob Lee at, at ASAE and uh, Reggie Henry that their open rates are much higher since they started the AI powered newsletter. But I want to know like what they're basing their choices for me on and what am I not getting that I might be interested in, but that's chosen for me. And so I think that the, you want to be transparent about what you're showing to people and why and give them lots of options. I don't know if that really answered your question, no, but it's... this is really about the right content in the same way that when a museum has an exhibit, they choose the right content to tell that story or the most compelling ones now. So it's exactly the same thought process. So that's where it, the curation part is very active and about yes. pulling together the information. So even if you have all these related things, what are the right related things to kind of put out there? Right. Um, so, and, and, and it's a learning exercise. You know, when I worked for NAR and social media was new, we had to learn what kinds of things work better on Facebook and what kinds of things work better on Twitter and which kinds of things don't work well on social media at all. You know, so we found that marketing messages didn't work very well on Facebook, but um, what worked on Facebook for our organization was information that our members could share with their spheres of influence to make them look smart. That was hugely popular as well as various kinds of uh, government advocacy issues that they wanted to talk about. So we had to really learn by doing. So nobody knows this from birth or from college because it's about your organization and your members and, and the particular channels that they're responding to. For some associations, their members aren't on either one, either you know Twitter or Facebook. So that's not the best place to put their effort. Can I ask Hillary, when you're talking about identifying the best platform mm -hmm. for the content, what kind of analytics or information are you, do you recommend associations look at to determine if it's effective on a platform? Is that purely like share rates, you know, how, how likes or what, or I'm seeing well, Elizabeth shaking her head. So. so this gets back into success metrics. One of the things that associations don't do that I always encourage them to do is tell them that every piece of content they publish needs to have an explicit audience and a clear goal. 
So why are we publishing this? What do we want to happen as a result? And the answer for that is different for different kinds of content. It's going to be different for a government advocacy kind of issue than it is for a conference content or a membership content or any kind of intellectual property that they create. And so if you don't have success metrics, you can tell a success or lack of success story using any kind of data. So you want to know what are we looking to happen and did it happen? So did more people register for the conference? If we pummeled them with more and more and more messages, you know, closing soon, early bird rate is changing, or did it not work? So it's not about what you did, but it's about did it work? One of the things that um, that's a real danger with social media is the idea of vanity metrics. Um, and, and this is something that associations really could stand to learn from the more cause-oriented nonprofit world. Every time they have a communication with their audience, they have a call to action. And the, the success or failure of a particular communication is what happened with that call to action. You can post all you like on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and Pinterest and Instagram and, you know, whatever the next greatest, latest, hottest social media platform that comes up might be and get all the likes and shares and hearts and attention and blah, blah, blah in the world. But was your goal really to get a whole bunch of likes? Probably not. That's, you know, that's, that's not, you didn't just want a whole bunch of little hearts on your, on your tweet, right? You were trying to actually accomplish something else. And if you weren't, why were you sending that communication in the first place? That's back to you're just, you're contributing to everybody's information overload. So, you know, when Hillary talks about, think about success metrics for that platform, for that communication, that's exactly what the point that she's making is, is you don't want to be so focused on vanity metrics that make you feel good but don't actually accomplish anything that you lose sight of what was the purpose of doing this in the first place that's what you have to measure against and that's what will show you things like oh gee our marketing messages that we thought were going to do great on facebook are not in fact accomplishing what we're trying to accomplish so if we want to continue to engage with people there let's think about another way yeah that makes yeah that makes perfect sense that you're not you shouldn't be judging it by what whatever random you know like vanity metric it's it's about what are you trying to do as an organization what are you trying to accomplish i think one thing as i was thinking about reading the white paper thinking about content curation that came up is a lot of associations are uh, putting more of their content behind a paywall um you know as another either member benefit or just another s source of non-member revenue um does that impact and and maybe maybe part of that is you put it behind that paywall to drive that membership to drive that. And so then it, it is actually the metric of membership join because of that um, is the success or, um, or are there challenges there that associations need to be thinking about if they want to be more strategic about content curation that paywalls may interfere with? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you are, you are certainly going to still continue to put, content behind a paywall. And we actually dealt with this um, in pretty significant way and are still, are still dealing with it as an industry when um, a lot of associations first started having 
online white label social networks, um, you know, through one of the, the various vendors out there, you know, similar to, to ASA's Collaborate uh, Network, you know, the, the opportunity for us to take our, our old school listservs, um, you know, and put them in a, um, in a more feature rich kind of, uh, kind of platform. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's the same kind of question, right? You're, you don't suddenly just want to throw open the doors to all of your paywalled content to everyone, you know, regardless. But when you start thinking about just, just like when you started thinking about, okay, well, we're going to have this online community and what is that's, that's just for our profession, our, our, our industry, or our members, and what does that mean as far as who has access to what? When you start thinking about content curation, that also gives you an opportunity to step back and think through who has access to what, what's public versus what's protected, and why. Um, and the other thing that it can allow you to do, much like you can do with an online community, is to offer free samples of your paid content, curated, um, and and give that as a taste of the kinds of things that you could get more of if you joined. Again, it's about providing context. You know, when you're doing this curation, it's about providing context to help people grasp meanings and make sense of their worlds. And by giving non-members a taste of that, it helps demonstrate the value of belonging. So uh, here's my here's my two cents on that too. Is um, it's about sort of how you, uh, how you publish your content and how you structure it. So um, one of the challenges of password protected content, especially if the entirety of the content itself is password protected, is it either doesn't show up on Google, it doesn't show up on your on-site search at all because people don't have permission to do it. Um, so you have to construct it so that the headline and the summary are public so they're accessible by a search engine, whether internal or public, um, but that the content itself is not. Um, I will say that content behind a paywall gets a fraction, 10%, 5%, 1% of the views and use of, of uh, public content. And so if your goal is to have a lot of your members read and access this, it's smarter to have more of the content public. Um, I think associations put content behind a paywall sometimes because of fear that their competitors will use it, that, they're, that anybody who's not a member can use it. But in this state of overload that we are all in, I think the risk of that is relatively low. People have to be pointed to good content in order to know it's there. Um, so I think the risk of, of finding it is lower than the risk of having people not use it. Um, and as far as curation is concerned, it's, the, it's how you structure and publish the content so that it can be found and you can highlight it and you can promote it. And Hillary, I, I thought that was a really good point about you, that you made about even if you're going to paywall content, you basically have to have finding agents. Um, you know, the, back to museums, that's like an archival term. Um, but, you know, like you've, you've got to have something like abstracts or some kind of way for people who maybe don't have access to the full content to at least know that it's there mm -hmm. um, and, and to have some idea of what it is because again, otherwise it's just completely hidden from them and they have no idea and, and there's, there's no motivation there 
for them to even try to find it because it, it's, again, it's just, it's completely hidden. Well, not only hidden, you have to write a headline that's meaningful and a True. summary that's meaningful. And I find, especially with PDF documents, which are far, far, far more ubiquitous than I wish they were, um, their headlines are terrible. You know, it'll be a number or the name of the person who created it or anything, and it's not written with a meaningful headline um, as far as the document title is concerned. And that's what people see in search. So I think um, all this content curation, I, you know, I think of all the museums I've been to, uh, there's some really amazing, you know, I've seen some really amazing uh, ways of displaying content of, you know, communicating and educating people as they're kind of engaging with uh, information. From an online standpoint, have you seen or uh, with any of these associations, have you seen some really creative and interesting formats of uh, the information that you thought was really uh, creative and really hit the message, um, or maybe was um, creatively simple in, in the way that it was set up and um, that really kind of helped resonate and kind of hit home at what you're trying, you're hoping associations will accomplish. For me, it's not about, you know, jazzy format, it's about clear context. So um, that's what I'm looking for. And the thing about content strategy in general is that if it's done well, you don't notice it. So unlike a, um, a museum exhibit that's supposed to be visual and immersive, I don't think that that's like typically how um, uh, members want to experience the information from their association. It's more like get in, help me, do something that I'm interested in doing, and then move on with your day. So uh, I don't notice creativity. I'm not, that's not what I'm looking for. I notice clarity, context, intelligence, really. You know, and Hillary, when we had presented about this a couple of weeks ago, I'm trying to remember the organization that you had referenced um, that had, had done a really good job of reorienting, reorienting their, con their content from, and associations are often guilty of this, being organized around, here's our internal departments, um, to being organized much more in the way the people in their field kind of thought through things. And they had, I remember they had sort of, back to the, that issue of, of finding agents, they had multiple ways of discovering the content. It had to do with, um, sort of who you were, it had to do with the topic you were interested in, it even had to do with like, give me all the video content or give me all of the, you know, whatever, whatever sort of type or platform. And I, I thought that was, was ASM, right? Association it, of uh, Microbiology. Yes. Yeah. And I thought that was quite clever. Right. Uh, Dina Lewis and Courtney Ryers, who Courtney works there and Dina has been working with them. They've been working a long time on creating a clear taxonomy and clear navigation and just uh, tremendous clarity on their website. American Medical Association too blew up the idea of that uh, organizational structure uh, focused navigation that all too many websites have. And there's a saying out there, you know, your users don't care about your org chart. And that's so, so, so true for membership organizations. They don't, they don't wanna see your information presented by which department created it. They just wanna see it distilled for them and put in a place that, that makes sense from 
their perspective. And so how do you do that? You learn what their perspective is. You test it. You ask them. You, uh, you know, evaluate what they're doing. For another non-association example of this, um, I, I wanted to point to, and, and this this is about to get into, yes, but they have resources far beyond what the typical association would have, which is true. Um, but the Washington Post has done a tremendous job with interactive data sets with their um, the information, the data they're maintaining on the coronavirus. And so the the thing that's so great about that is, you know, if you're trying to figure out what's going on with the latest medical information, if you're trying to figure out what's going on with infection rates, if you're trying to go figure out what's going on with positivity rates in different locations, et cetera, they're, it's not that the Washington Post is originating this data, of course, right? They're not doctors, um, but they've brought together valid, vetted sources of information about what's happening, and then they've put it all into a really um, elegant platform that allows the user to manipulate the data in sort of very intuitive ways to get to the answers to the questions that you might particularly happen to have. Now, again, this is the Washington Post, not, you know, whatever your association happens to be. They've got resources far beyond what most associations can access. So I'm not saying, you know, you need to immediately run out and, and, and duplicate that even for like your own industry data, but you could use things like that to inspire your thinking about ways that you might be able to present relevant data in your industry or profession, captured and maintained by your association or not, in ways that your audience can interact with. Well, and typically the easiest or the most straightforward way to do that is by uh, organizing your information by topic, not department. That's the alternative. And that's where the taxonomy is your friend because usually uh, associations that I've worked with anyway, don't just have one, they have a dozen. So how do we rectify all of them and bring them together so that um, members can look through and sort the information by the topics in the words that they use in the framework and their mental model. So yeah, taxonomy uh, is part of the baseline of curation. So Elizabeth, talking about staff, uh, the white paper does touch on that associations are probably going to need a, a, another set of skills in order to have be successful. What are the, you know, what kind of skills you feel like associations currently don't have enough of or should be looking um, or maybe just need to be training up folks on or maybe even need to be looking for new types of employees in order to be successful around this strategy? Yeah, so in both white papers, the original 2012 white paper and the, the 2020 uh, revised and expanded version um, and improved version, I referenced some work by the Institute for the Future. Um, and they had identified um, kind of this 2020 skills that, that professionals are going to need in order to be successful in the, the current decade that we're now in. Of course, this was forward looking in 2012 and, and now it's here. Um, and so they had actually done an update of that original piece um, shortly before we brought the white paper out that I was, I was able to reference. They switched around some of the, some of the skills. They, they swapped out some skills that they had identified that were going to be critical. Um, and perhaps more importantly, organized them into 
personal skills, that's things that I need myself, people skills, things that I need in working with others, um, applied knowledge, um, and then kind of broader workplace skills. And these are super relevant for everything that we do um, in, in our jobs and in our professional lives in 2020 and beyond. And certainly a number of them have direct relevance for curation, things like new media literacy and a design mindset and computational thinking and sense making. Um, and so we have links to the, the full documents uh, from IFTT in, in the white paper, in, the, in the, the, the references there. I highly recommend that people go get those materials and, and look at them and think about them when you're thinking about job descriptions, when you're thinking about hiring, when you're thinking about ongoing training for your existing staff. We also reference a guy named Robin Good, who is, is kind of a, um, a, a curation guru, um, and again, has been for a number of years. And he talks about a specific set of skills, it's, it's you know, 12 or 15 skills that are required in order to achieve curation greatness. Um, and they are things that are extremely concrete, but are not necessarily the exact same kinds of skills that your content staff currently possesses, or that, that may not be the best way of saying it. Um, it's it's um, muscles that they might not currently be using, uh, because they're, in a tr more traditional way of looking at all this stuff, our content staff tends to be more focused on originating content. And when you're, when you're curating, you don't have to do as much origination. You do have to do a lot more sifting and vetting and sorting and placing in context and, and you know, providing voice and all that kind of thing. So it's, it's not like it's totally 180 degrees different from everything that you're, that you're you know, that your current staff has, has currently been doing, it's a different emphasis. Um, and again, it's going to require them to um, start using some content muscles that may be a little atrophied because some of their other content muscles are maybe a little overdeveloped. Yeah, so, um, so from my perspective, um, uh, a year ago, ASA, the ASAE Foundation published the results of a report that I wrote with uh, Dina Lewis and Carrie Hain uh, on content strategy adoption and maturity in associations. And one of the things that we found in thinking about and researching that white paper is that to um, improve their content, associations really need to look at the HR things. They need to put content work and content skills into people's job descriptions. And so I think that's even more important or um, curation is a great example of why and what needs to change. So if I had to sort of boil down the skills themselves, it's, you know, analysis, member awareness, facilitation, and collaboration. And right now, those things are not in people's job descriptions to do that. In fact, the way that associations budget their programs and motivate their staff, it's very much my department, my initiative, my program. And so what we're talking about needing to change, uh, one of the things uh, from a content strategy perspective or curation is that they're all our programs. So it's not a competition for 
you know, real estate's based on the homepage. It's about um, us working together to create and sort of cement that member value in understanding what we offer them and their ability to use it all. So making the connections is super, super important. And yet people aren't going to do that kind of collaboration work in their spare time. So if you expect them to behave differently, you have to craft their job descriptions a little bit differently. And so I think that um, it, it is that muscle that Elizabeth referred to, but it's also changing, you know, how people think about their work and the content that results from their work and how they're supposed to do that. Absolutely. If we want people to work in more of a collaborative way, cross departments, cross disciplines, et cetera, we have to reward that behavior. Exactly. Yeah. So I say content strategy is an HR issue and people are usually looking at me quizzically until I explain that. And um, otherwise they're not going to do it because it's in addition to what they're already doing and they're already busy. You have to, you absolutely have to look at the, the structure of what incentives you're providing to whom to do what. And we, we tend to think about that with regards to our members. We're, we're usually pretty good at thinking about, you know, what kind of behaviors are we creating incentives for? We're not always great at thinking about that for our staff. Um, and, you know, it, and again, if, if you want people to engage in certain behaviors, you have to create incentives for them to do that. And you have to make sure that you're not creating disincentives, which is right now, in a lot of cases, we are, as Hillary has just talked about, we are actively disincentivizing mm -hmm that kind of cross-departmental collaboration because of the way our structures of our internal reward system are set up. So I was lucky enough to work with one association that realized that it wasn't just their departments that were siloed, it was their member committees that were siloed. Mm. And they did something really brilliant. It was the Endocrine Society. And they already, before I started, they put together a cross-committee uh, team of people handpicked from their different committees to see that connecting the content that they produced was the best thing that they could possibly do on their members' behalf. And so plenty of associations, it's not their departments or their staff who are creating the content or creating all of it. It's often their members. So just as we're talking about motivating your staff to work differently, you have to motivate your members, the volunteers or the people in your membership who are creating your content, you have to motivate them to work differently also. Absolutely. It is often the case that our, our committees are just as siloed, if not yeah. more so, as our internal yeah. departments. Yeah. So I was thrilled to walk into a project with that particular client and see that they were one step even ahead of me. So it wasn't a recommendation that I had to give. You know, they were like, hey, we have this in place already. Wow. Well, Thank you both so much for coming on today. I think uh, today's conversation is uh, hopefully will be uh, is a nice teaser because I think we kind of went around the white paper, but I think everyone will definitely put a link to the white paper in the podcast notes. So everyone should definitely go and download it. Uh, page 10, I, I really like the content curation uh, maturity model that we touched on a couple of times, which is really great visual to kind of help contextualize. And there are some great case studies in there as well and other information. So. Um, folks should definitely go and check that out. If people, Hillary, if people are looking for more information on you or content curation, uh, where would they, where would you say they go 
So my website is contentcompany.biz, B-I-Z. And um, I have a newsletter that comes out monthly-ish. Um, I also right now have a content strategy mentoring program that I'm enrolling people in for September and have that a, a couple times a year. And I also run a content strategy community at content-strategy.com. So all of those resources. You should definitely sign up for Hillary's community and or the coaching if the mentoring group, if this is something that's of interest to you. Um, and also, obviously, you know, definitely download the white paper. Um, and as Justin mentioned, you know, we'll make sure the link is in uh, the podcast notes. It is completely free. Um, you know, you don't have to sign up for anything or, you know, just you can just have it, um, you know, use it, spread it, share it, read it, love it. Um, and the other thing that I would say is uh, also download the ASAE Foundation Study that Hillary mentioned that, that she worked on with uh, Dina Lewis and uh, Carrie Hain last year for the foundation. It's also free. Um, and we it's have free the- for ASAE members. It's $10. Okay. It's, it's okay. $10 it's, if you're not a member. Okay. Okay. So there you go. It's, it's free for ASAE, ASAE members. Um, and the link to get it is rather lengthy, um, but it is also in the white paper. Or if you go to the ASAE Foundation website, you'll be able to find it. Um, well, there's a bit.ly link that we'll put in there. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so we'll have that in there too. Um, and if you, I, Justin's probably about to ask me this, but if you want to find more information about me, um, my website is getmespark.com. Well, thank you again both for coming on today and I'm sure we'll see more uh, great content from both of you in the near future. Thanks, Justin.